Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It's been great to be back, Paul. Uh, our guest this week is one of Australia's best-known economists. He's a former chief economist at City. Uh, he's had a fantastic career. He's now managing director of market e- economics. It's Stephen Kukulis. Cook, welcome back on the show. Thank you, Paul. Good day, David. Look, uh, it's a huge packed show. We're going to talk rates, the labour market, housing, central banks, uh, China, but let's get straight into it. Stephen, you think the RBA should be cutting rates. You said in a tweet this morning that the board was bordering on inept. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I I am a bit old-fashioned in a way. I'm still of the view that the RBA should never have a forecast for its inflation rate being anything other than 2.5%, the middle of its target range, because if they were forecasting 3%, for example... They'd hike rates to bring it back down to two and a half. So for this last year and and right now, they've got a forecast for inflation of two percent, two and a quarter percent by the time we get to 2020, uh, and that's got some pretty heroic assumptions about GDP growth, about wages growth, uh, and even the unemployment rate to some extent. So they're sort of hoping rather than guiding the economy does that sort of thing. And, and at a time when the world economy is doing well, but not great, uh, I think that the only arm of policy that's available is monetary policy, because we do know that the government sector, and with an election coming up in six or 12 months, both sides are going to be not really doing much on stimulatory measures for the economy. The only arm of policy that's left is monetary policy, and a 1.5% cash rate for the last couple of years has not delivered a 25 inflation rate, a three handle on wages, and a, and a sustained 3% handle on GDP growth. And uh, Phil Lowe during the week was saying he was optimistic about wages getting back to that sort of, but he admitted that basically it was going to be a long time coming. Yeah, well, I'm optimistic about Collingwood this year too, and I don't know whether they're going to make it. Um, <laughs> well, I hope so, and I hope Phil's right. I, I'm, uh, yeah, I really hope the RBA is right and I'm wrong, to be, to be blunt, because I want a strong economy. That's um, what I think most good economists should be worried about, strong growth, unemployment low, and all these other things. So Phil's sort of been banging on about that for a while, but when you look at even things like the uh, public service wage decision this week, again, didn't get much attention, uh, they mandated a 2% pay rise. So there's a significant proportion of your workforce that's only getting a two. 2.0, this is, not even two and a half. Uh, you look at um, uh, these sorts of award-based wages, and then and almost none of them have got a three uh, in terms of 3% growth. So if you're thinking there and Phil's optimism about wages growth picking up to three, or even the budget forecast, three and a half percent, heaven forbid, um, you need the private sector wages growth to be really strong and when unemployment rate the unemployment rate is mired at five and a half give or take every month uh, you're not getting that demand for labor that's going to be driving wages growth higher and it's not just an Australian phenomenon I know the previous podcast that you guys have done with very clever people have sort of highlighted this wage issue as, as, as partly a global one uh, but nonetheless we've got to take account or the Reserve Bank should be taking account of these global issues when they're looking at domestic conditions so what about the, the very simple counter-argument, though, that uh, for keeping rates where they are, the economy's going roughly okay, um, just posted, you know, 3.1% annual growth. Um, But isn't it smart to keep those 150 basis points in the locker to have up your sleeve, if if uh, to mix my metaphors, I'm keeping them in the locker <laughs> and keeping them up your sleeve, um, but, uh, but to have them in the locker if, if there's a real problem? 
to some extent, but you could argue now that uh, why do you keep it in the locker when at the moment we do have something of a problem. You've got 1.1 million people underemployed. They've got a job but want to work more hours, 720-odd thousand, I think it is, uh, unemployed. And the as we mentioned, the, 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 the way to get growth going, if you were to, let's assume you cut rates to 1% between now and year end, I'm pretty confident that you would get a response in terms of growth and investment and jobs, and in 2019, the labour market and wages. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you would. Um, so to keep it in the locker, well, I reckon the rainy day's here now, so saving it for a rainy day to have another metaphor thrown into your uh, mix. Um, yeah, here and now, do it now. Don't, don't wait. I don't think we've got a, ca- a catastrophe looming. Um, so you adjust policy. And the other thing about monetary policy... Uh, as opposed to fiscal stimulus, which I know some people still think is an important thing, and, and yes, there's certainly a role for it, is that um, monetary policy is free um, and easily reversed, whereas fiscal policies that we've seen is not Once you free, bake it in, it has and, to... And, and, yeah, and it's yeah. very hard to reverse. If you stimulate the policy, it's very hard to take that back from us taxpayers who don't want anything ever taken away from us. So you cut rates today, for example, and you find that, whoops, that was a bit too aggressive. Well, you hike rates tomorrow, um, and it hasn't cost you anything, not even your credibility, because um, you know, you're the central bank, you're pragmatic and you're reacting to data like all mere mortals do. David, what do you think about this? Because, um, you know, um, Australia has been um, far removed uh, in, term, in central banking terms, uh, and we are going to talk about the, the ECB and the Fed in, in a little bit, but, uh, uh, you know, in terms of this, this big levels of stimulus that monetary policy has been able to deliver into these economies, um, which are now starting to um, show some results. What do you think about where the RBA, RBA has been? Where has the RBA been? Uh, I think they're fighting a battle that was probably needed to be uh, you know, fought probably a decade or so ago. Uh, they're fighting yesterday's battle with the, uh, the aim of like, you know, financial stability and, and making sure like, you know, that, uh, that the household debt burden and the like doesn't go and cause a, a problem. That should have been done in the past. And I think we're at the situation now where I agree with, with Kook that um, a lot of their optimism is more so just hope hope that these things are going to happen. And at the moment, obviously, the economy is performing all right. It's not doing like no spectacularly well at the same time. But uh, is this what we should be you know, aiming for, like this sort of muddle through? And as you rightly pointed out, when something does go awry, do we want to have an economy that's building some, some, some momentum or do we want an economy that's weak and not really doing what it should be, not, not at potential, uh, relatively high unemployment? That's something that you need to go and consider as well. I do – I'm open to the idea of cutting rates again, but – I can see why they're trying to go and stick with this mandate at the moment where it's like, yeah, stability is going to be confident and everything else. But I just question whether uh, that confidence may be uh, no, not, not found in the future and not actually you know, no, derived in reality. Yeah, David, I think you're right. It's sort of like a battle that should have been perhaps elevated a few years ago. And I remember quite strongly that you know, Glenn Stevens, when he was governor and, and uh, uh, was arguing very much against macroprudential issues, that we, we knew that there was a housing problem, if you like, Five years ago, we know houses were very expensive, household debt levels were strong, um, and we had the experiment coming through in New Zealand with uh, Macro Pru and and the things that finally, finally, the Reserve Bank started talking about with their friends at, at APRA and the like uh, only a couple of years ago. Had they five years ago had a look at more uh, unconventional policy settings to tackle the housing market and allowed interest rates to be lower, you would have perhaps nipped in the bud this latest uh, bout of house price um, and household debt growth, 
and allowed monetary policy to do its bit. And the thing that we keep forgetting about monetary policy, we always focus, focus on housing, housing and housing, business investment uh, is yeah. also very sensitive to interest rates. And it is, look, it's tracking okay, but it, you wouldn't say it's strong. But isn't part of the problem that the economic mix that we have at the moment uh, just pales in comparison to what we had a decade ago, uh, where uh, hugely capital-intensive uh, industries—we're talking about mining—you um, uh, know—and so when you get that reduction in what the, they built all the mines they needed at the time, I think BHP announced this week it's going to tip another four billion dollars into a mine in WA, uh, which is always good to see. Um, but. Uh, we're now in the economic mix now is just different. It's not as capital intensive. You don't need these big uh, projects, huge machines, apart mm. from maybe the infrastructure side. And, and there is an interesting thing in the dynamics, and Phil touched, Phil Lowe touched on this in his speech during the week about um, uh, the, the change in the structure of the economy, and one that's sort of a nice high-profile one, because everybody knows about Uber and uh, Airbnb, is that had they not existed, for example, if you, if, again, going back a decade, with a tourism boom and uh, high population growth and a demand for taxis, if you like, as simple as that, the taxi companies would have bought more cars, as in CapEx would have been increasing in CapEx, uh, rather than people who only drove their car one hour a, a day are now driving it 20 hours a day because they've become Uber, Uber drivers. Same with hotels and accommodation, that we would have probably had a much stronger rebound in hotel construction, but instead that apartment that was vacant for half the year, someone's Airbnb being it. And so you've got the tourism numbers being very, very strong. People are still catching taxis and all the rest of it, but without a CapEx response. So it's a really curious sort of dynamic that's going on that um, has sort of seen that the economy is sort of changing in its structure in the way that you, you know, we all catch uh, uh, transport and how, where we stay when we go on our holidays, but it's been one that's been linked to not a lot of extra growth in the economy. So there's a really interesting question here, which is those assets now are, are basically they're being used more intensively right so if you've got a, a house that's a, or an apartment that's was an investment property or is an investment property and it's uh, empty for a particular uh, amount of the year now you can um uh, you can lease it out it's much easier to do that and the same if you've got a car and uh, and some free time you can jump in an uber and, and drive and so you're using those assets and so that should be um overall should be beneficial now one of the big things that the governor raised this week was this question of productivity uh, growth, though, David, and you um, you pointed out, uh, you went into this in some detail. Uh, maybe you can talk about some of the challenges there. Oh, just that uh, he, he touched upon, and I, going back to productivity as a, as a whole, it's sometimes seen as an antiquated uh, measure of you no know, measuring output of an economy, uh, particularly for a services-based economy such as Australia. Now, how do you go and measure like the services industry? And I can understand why there's a lot of sort of skepticism about how it's actually used and everything else. But um, just the general idea was that innovation, ideas, and fostering those sort of things, building the infrastructure to go and help us become more efficient as an economy uh, just seems to have been lacking in the last few years. And Given the, uh, the ties between productivity growth and real wages growth, uh, it does make you sort of wonder. Uh, that seems to be another key, besides the cyclical factors, this is something that needs to be focused on in terms to how are we going to go and help the household sector? We want to give them more income. How are we going to give them more income? Give them jobs, give them faster wage increases. And part of that solution has got to be like making ourselves more efficient. Uh, for the time being, obviously, uh, we've got a lot of infrastructure that's being built both by uh, federal and state governments. But uh, no, I think the investment in human capital and training in particular is one area that I think we could probably 
perform better on? Uh, there's something I'm absolutely going to hop into. Um, I, I may just get into it now. Um, I've got some excerpts from Lowe's speech where he talks about some of the challenges with um, uh, with with uh, with wages. Uh, but uh, just bear with me for a sec because I'm going to quote from it reasonably extensively. Right. So he said that. Um, to your point, David, he said that the firms that are not able to innovate and take advantage of new technologies as quickly are slipping behind and they feel under pressure. As a way of remaining competitive, many of these firms are responding by having a very strong focus on cost control. In many cases, this translates into a focus on controlling labor costs. This cost control mentality does not make for an environment where firms are willing to pay larger wage increases. Now, fair enough, okay? But he goes on to say a little bit later in the speech. Labor markets in most part of the parts of the country have tightened over the past year. There has been a sharp increase in the share of firms reporting the availability of labor as a constraint. The only other time in the past 25 years where this share has been as high as it is now was in the early stages of the resources boom. And here's the kicker. One explanation for why firms are reporting that it is hard to find workers with the necessary skills is that the very high focus on cost control over recent times has led to reduced work-related training. With the labour market now tightening, we are perhaps starting to pay the price for this. On a more positive note, the number of businesses and industry associations are now starting to address the skills shortage, right? So, but in effect, what he's saying there is that companies have been dudding workers by not investing in their people, right? Um, they're not just dudding, dudding workers, of course, in that process, because longer term, there's a price to pay, and we're now seeing it because the skills level deter- skill levels in the economy deteriorate like relevant uh, relative to the demand for work from companies. So you get a skills shortage, which companies need to try and plug somehow. And the reality is companies will either take on people who are not as skilled as they, they'll, they'll trade it off. They'll say, well, they're not as skilled as we would perhaps like, or they're forced to look over, overseas for the highly skilled people because they're simply not there. Either way, the benefits aren't flowing through very evenly across the economy as, as much as you like. So you get this continuing pattern, which is what Lowe was talking about, of strong companies, and let's face it, a lot of them are big global competitors to Australian companies, um, being able to maintain their dominance and pull away from those competitors, which are likely to be the local things. And a source of frustration to me, as you can probably tell, um, (laughs) that (laughs) that businesses scrimp on these kinds of things seemingly without thinking about the long-term impacts because, um, you know, yes, you can do have public policy that introduces incentives for training and all of that kind of stuff, but wouldn't it be nice for companies occasionally to do the right thing, uh, invest in their workers, because it's not just investment in them, it's investment long-term in the overall economy. Okay, I'm done. Um. <laughs> and and it's a, that's a huge issue, and that was a terrific summary of, of what's, what is a really critical issue, but... My concern with that analysis is that you're not going to get firms spending money if they can get away without spending that money. The profit motive is still strong and and fair enough too. Uh, The competitive pressures are really, really acute. The globalisation issues, which are still unfolding as as we speak, have been unfolding for many, many decades to be frank. But now it is very, very easy for a competitor to come and undercut you. So if you're going to be spending money uh, upskilling your workforce so that they've got the skills required more than you need to, and I think that's more than you need to is the critical thing, then you're going to say, well, my cost pressures have gone up and I'm uh, losing my competitive position because 
this other company is coming in. So it's a real dilemma. It is a genuine dilemma, and it's arguably a market failure issue. And I know you just touched on it briefly, that there could be a role for government to be either providing subsidies for firms to keep uh, the skill set of their workers higher, or even those who are out of the workforce looking to get back into the workforce, or our young people as they get through the schooling system, uh, have the skills and flexibility to be adaptive to how this economy is changing, because it's pretty clear. You know, I think there was a, a lovely article on, that listed the sort of top 10 stocks on the um, S&P in the US and the top 10 stocks in Australia oh, from and na- now and 10, year- uh, and 10 years ago even, even 10 years ago, so nothing really. Um, so the top 10 companies uh, in the US 10 years ago uh, did not include Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google. Like, wow, you know, the, the incredible changes and they're the vibrancy and they're the reason basically that the S&P and, and, and the Dow have been going absolute gangbusters. You look at our top 10 here in Australia and it's the banks, it's the mining companies and with the exception of CSL, CSL which is yeah. which is a vibrant global innovator, you know, terrific US dollar company. earning. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 we just haven't had it. And so there is a role for public policy, arguably, to pick up that slack that Phil and you so nicely put about having having the, the, the workforce that's skilled enough so that when we get to a 5% uh, unemployment rate, the Nehru or something close to that, that we have still enough workers who are skilled to take up a job rather than relying on importing workers to do the jobs that... that that the vibrant companies in Australia will need. Do we do we focus on the right type of education as well? That's the thing that I often question is that real world experience is, you know, it's fine to begin with in tertiary education and get a degree, but then there seems to be this mindset where you have to go and continue that and do a master's and things along those lines. Whereas I'm not sure whether that's going to go and deliver you the results that you're looking for, for this new age industries that Australia is craving so much that we don't have in an abundance. Uh, I just question as well whether we've got our priorities wrong in terms of what looks better on a piece of paper, like a master's or something where it says, I've gone and worked in this industry, this industry, this industry, I've got all these skills that I've learned in these areas. I think that would be probably, in my perspective, uh, if I was sitting there about to go and hire someone, I know which person I'd go and choose. I know. It's really interesting. I was at, uh, we're, we're the media partner, partner for the FinTech Australia uh, Awards, the Finneys, uh, and we were at their annual awards uh, thing the other day. And... Um, it's, it's been pretty extraordinary, the development of that sector. Uh, if you think about just a few years ago, you know, a startup raising, a tech startup raising $5 million, never mind a financial technology startup, but any, any you know, raising 5 or $10 million was a pretty big thing. Now, now those kind of deals are pretty commonplace, and they're not as much big news uh, these days. Um, there are also a range of big funds now that um, uh, venture capital and private equity funds uh, that have raised uh, amounts like 100, 200, 250 million dollars, and they're going through the process of allocating that now. Some of them have gone through that first that first uh, pro- series of um, of allocations, and they're moving on to their second fund or whatever, which is great to see. I thought the other really interesting thing about that uh, financial. Oh, the FinTech uh, Australia Awards was the amount of lawyers in the room. And I think, well, I think when I spoke, I pointed out that, uh, you know, you know you're, in a, you're at a serious point in life any time that all the lawyers show up. Um, so, um, but they're, they're necessary for that because there's so many like, regulatory questions. And it's great to see that bright minds uh, and big companies are now getting involved uh, with those kind of things. But to your point, David, do we have the skills? Are there enough engineers out there? Are there enough of those uh, people who understand market sizing, 
um, uh, you know, the ability to go into bigger consumer markets like um, the Malaysias and the um, uh, and the Chinas, um, if you want to try and crack that, you know, if you can get a small slice of anything in China, you'll uh, you'll do extremely well. Um, so, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that sector sustains itself when the other competitors in that space are in London and Singapore and New York and, and San Francisco. But it seems yeah. to be, it has to be the way of the future. That yeah, we, we, while it's all very well that we've got banks and mining companies that are that are pretty good. Dare I say that with the Royal Commission going up? But no, 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 they are very good, even with a few of those little uh, hiccups that are along the way. That uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're going to be the the staple part of our economy. They're the foundation, hopefully. But we just need a few bells and whistles on top of that, so that it's not to say that yeah, well, let's develop our own Facebook and Amazon and our own Apple or uh, anything like that. But having having some vibrancy to to be doing that and outside you know we talk about education and tourism and things they're terrific as well but we just need that little bit of a um uh sort of a shining light to sort of get the economy and these things that we're talking about in, in momentum and skills and knowledge and these sort of things to get us to that next level that's going to add to these productivity numbers and dare i say sort of permeate its way through the economy you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. We're here with uh, Stephen Kukulis from Market Economics. Uh, okay, and I want to quickly talk about the housing market. There was a, a report, Pete Wargent, when he was on the show a few weeks ago, um, flagged this. Um, but it was a report that uh, Pete from Wargent Advisory uh, worked on with a firm called Riskwise up in Brisbane. And it looked at, at the, um, the, a detailed look at the likely impact of uh, Labour's proposals to, to cut capital debt gains tax discounts uh, on property and eliminating uh, negative gearing um, uh, on existing properties. Um, now, uh, I think the point of the thing was that at, at, when this policy was first conceived a few years ago, the housing market was at a, a very different point in the cycle. Um, that it, it has ro- rolled over now uh, and house prices are contracting. And I think the point was very simple. You introduce it now, you're going to see some pre, you'll, you'll compound that the declines. Um, Stephen, what do you think about this idea now at this point? Uh, yeah, look, a good policy's got to be implemented regardless of whether there are some short-term term costs. I remember that when the GST was introduced in 2000, that uh, there was a concern that you're introducing this increase in a consumption tax, basically, at a time when the economy wasn't travelling very well. We had the tech boom turning into a tech wreck and all this other debate was going on. Doesn't mean you don't do it, but you've got to be aware that there could be some some short-term fallout. Now, there's no question that the negative gearing policy, restricting it to only new dwellings and stopping it for uh, existing dwellings, will take away one of the big areas of demand for housing that we've seen in the last, gosh, decade or more. Investor demand uh, for established dwellings will presumably dry up. <laughs> may not go to zero because you can still buy an, an established dwelling, but you just can't negative gear it if you want an investment in that space. So, uh, And, of course, it probably will encourage supply because you can negative gear a newly constructed dwelling. And that's what the policy is all about. So at a time when the housing market is weak, which it is, house prices are softening in most cities, certainly Sydney and Melbourne, uh, it will force prices to be lower than they would otherwise be. I think that's the terminology that people would like. And, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of issues that sort of that, that come through here. So if Labor win the election and they implement this policy and it gets through the Senate, a few hurdles to clear there, then um, 
I reckon there'll be a bring forward of investment that people, there'll be a frantic effort to sort of, I want an investment property before these these rules come in. So you'll probably get a bit of a jump in activity, but then on the 1st of July, whatever year it's implemented, it'll actually go into free fall to, to next to nothing. And that's when the pr- pressure will be on prices. I'm pretty sure that, um, you know, our, our policymaker friends will be alert to that, watching what actually happens. But there's no question, if you're taking out the investor demand for established dwellings, uh, it, it is a supply and demand do work. My economics 101 does come home to play every now and then. And if you've got lower demand, I know what happens to prices. Prices will be lower. What do you think, David? My one area of concern about the, the proposed changes, negative gearing in particular, is that uh, for new dwellings only, what happens when the resale occurs? That's the two-tier system of the housing market. It will, it will essentially make the housing market, you'll have a separate group of investors who are only for new builds and a separate group of investors, owner-occupiers and the like for this other set uh, or people who are not looking to go negatively gear a property. You know, to me, it just makes it so much more complex. Um, the way things are at the moment, given what the macro prudentials uh, rules that have been implemented recently have shown, they have definitely acted to go and slow the market. The lending standards are, by all signs, uh, becoming much more firmer and stricter in the way that they're being implemented. To me, that's all that... I think is required at this point in time to go and then rejig it again and add another layer of like complexity over the top of the housing market, particularly at a time when people are already nervous about what's going on. Uh, my general gut feel is that it's probably not necessary in time. Uh, over the longer term though, like any tax policy, there's always question marks can be raised. If the same issues arise again in the future, then perhaps it's a time to go and revisit it. But we've already seen the stock of interest-only loans, investor activity has gone fallen sharply already. So if that was the concern, then I think that it's already been addressed. So I have a question. Um, one of the, well, the big issue that we've had, um, the underlying fundamental issue is the supply shortage, um, particularly in the major cities, um, which has driven up prices, right? Uh, so... One of the things, Stephen, was investor interest in the market brought on that supply. When it was clear that people would be willing to buy properties as they were constructed, um, then that's when you get the supply response, right? So with that now starting to fall away, right? Um, So with that starting to fall away, what do you think is the... Do you think there's a possibility that this leaves you with the persistent supply problem if if you don't have that investor demand? Sure. Uh, I, can, I can see that issue, but I think that property developers in their willingness to keep their business going, I can see the ads coming. This is a negative gearing eligible property for you to invest by today before you know before too long so even though those nasty people uh, the labor party have sort of uh, abolished negative gearing for established dwellings here's this wonderful high-rise tower that you can buy a share of and have it eligible for negative gearing so I, I'm, I'm not convinced that there's going to be uh, there'll be hiccups along the way as we as we just discussed with the with the price spike or a demand spike before it takes effect and then a collapse afterwards. The interesting issue will be, uh, will there still be decent levels of construction? But if, but again, the investors who do want a negative gear may, will, buy these brand new dwellings. And yes, there are some definitional issues. What's a new dwelling? So if they sell it after two years, you're not selling it to a potential investor. You can only sell it, well, mm. sell it to an owner-occupier because it's not eligible for, for um, negative gearing anymore. So there are a few issues. Indeed, they are, they are. 
But um, I'm not so sure that we're going to see supply fall away because, as I mentioned, the property developers will say, you know, buy this one because it's eligible for, <laughs> for negative gearing. Uh, it'll certainly be interesting. And, law- and lawyers will make sure that it is eligible too. <laughs> they'll, they'll look at the law and say, no one's ever lived in this house. It hasn't had the key turned or whatever the definition is going to be uh, to, to, to make it eligible. Um, it'll certainly be uh, the legislation uh, drafting process in there will be an interesting uh, interesting part of it. Ava. I'd hate to see it. <laughs> yeah. yeah so listen to our conversation we've just had in the space of five minutes about how like you know it's it's so many questions that are up in the air and this is a we're talking about a, a market which is worth you know, valued at seven trillion dollars. Uh, I just I my my personal view is that you know you don't want to muck around with that because if you go and mess that up then you're going to mess the Australian economy up. It'll it'll be interesting. I still think the big, big issue there is just underlying supply, land release, um, you know, planning issues with state governments, uh, you know, some of those regular, regulatory, just things that make it just too hard yeah, to that, build that, that was exactly what, in that report, yeah. anyone who can go and read on the BI site, the, the recommendations that were in the report, they went and analysed the, uh, the impact of like halving the uh, capital gains tax and uh, abolishing negative gearing, but they, they listed a whole bunch of uh, you know, recommendations and it wasn't that they shouldn't go and implement it. The recommendations were basically need to have better coordination between all the bodies that go and all involved in the housing process. So from like you know, greenfields to brownfields to you know, built then you know, establish market. And at the moment, it just seems to be like this whole thing where it's like, oh, yeah, what's going on today? I'll put the finger up in the air. Oh, no, I think you know, the, you know, we can go and like, release this amount of landers. It does. It, it reeks of being a bit inept in terms of how they're actually you know, organising it. And it yeah. Yeah. Well, there is the, in the, the very good RBA research paper, uh, gosh, six or 12 months ago, I've lost track of my timing here, on um, zoning as one of the issues that forces prices to be where they are. And uh, I think the conclusion of that paper was to, uh, as David's touching on, rezone land. You know, we're, we're living in these big cities. We want to, Everybody wants to live sort of close to where they work and where there's a sporting facility and a shop and a school and a, and a, and a hospital and all these other things. Uh, our population's nowhere near as dense as the good old London, Tokyo, New York and these other wonderfully dynamic cities that sort of work reasonably well. Uh, so part of the issue's got to be as David's touching on, these other policies are, are there. They're, they're important policies. But, gee, if we could just add to the supply um, through rezoning, more high-rise, more densely packed, but still lovely places to live in, <laughs> housing, uh, you know, Sydney and Melbourne would be would be terrific. They'd cope quite well. So it's you know, rezoning. Is uh, critical. I've heard some interesting commentary from, from some people. That, you know, the migration intake that we have at the moment um, people moving into to Australia from overseas have a different benchmark for what crowded, uh, uh, you know, what crowded means, uh, what, <laughs> yeah. what what busy means, what dense living means. Not in my backyard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that the, so that they're, they're like they're open, much more open to living in in very high density um, uh, developments and in in pockets of cities, which are which are uh, you know. More built up than Australia has conventionally done, if you like. Well, the interesting thing, and, and David would know this extremely well, that in the last four odd years, when we have had a housing or a dwelling construction surge, you know, we're building two hundred and thirty thousand a year, something like that. The number of houses on a on a quarter acre block has been basically steady for this last four or five years. The increase has all been in apartments or multi units, whatever they call them. So, we, in fact, we've had this sort of change coming through. 
partly because of necessity, I dare say, that, and again, people wanting to live near the city, they're perhaps willing to compromise a barbecue in the backyard for an apartment with a little hibachi on the, on the balcony or something like that. So you've got this change in the way people are wanting to live because they do want to be close to where the action is so they can get to the Swans game quickly rather than having to commute for an hour. Definitely. That's the 100% reason why I live where I do. <laughs> Just easy access to the SCG and the uh, Allianz Stadium. <laughs> Um, okay, look, that's uh, housing. Um, that's the, the domestic uh, animal, if you like. Um, but let's look uh, more at the global picture at the moment. There is big, there are big, big things happening. Um, the US Federal Reserve uh, is lifting interest rates and the ECB, David, um, big development this week. Probably expected, but the euro still got smoked. Um, but um, they're pulling their, uh, their QE program. Yep. 30, uh, 31st of December 2018, all things go to plan. There'll be no more asset purchases conducted by the ECB. It'll just be uh, keeping their balance sheet as is, the size it is at the moment. Um, the, the reason for the euro getting smoked was another bit of trickery from uh, Mario Draghi, who is probably like the most sophisticated central banker I've seen in terms of being able to go and get the, the right market response to what he's looking for. Uh, in their statement, it went and said, oh, no, we don't plan to go and lift interest rates uh, until at least the end of the next European summer. Markets were fully priced for a rate increase by this time next year. Um, that was enough just to go and scare the, uh, scare the, uh, the get the cats among the pigeons. And uh, the euro was absolutely smoked, uh, as you said. No, positioning was probably another factor there as well. Um, they also, uh, crucially, their inflation forecast, they target 2%. Their forecasts don't have 2% at the moment. So they still don't think it's getting back there. So from what was originally seen by markets, when they first saw like, oh, no, the uh, QE's done, Everyone was like, oh, buy a euro. Then you just see like eyes are scanning down the paper. And they're, oh, no. And they saw that and they smoked. Euro dropped our biggest decline, I think, since uh, early 2016. And that was uh, back in the days when everyone was talking about China's, uh, China's economy imploding. Yeah. And like the bond purchase program, um, its maximum is, you know, um, 30 billion euros a month. Uh, that's coming down to 15 billion euros um, a month in September. And then it stops uh, at the end of December, uh, these, they are big numbers. Um, and the fed is doing the same thing, uh, as tapering off its asset purchasing program, uh, and starting to tighten, uh, rates. Uh, Stephen, what do you think the, um, this is era defining stuff, right? This is era changing. We've just been through this huge period of, uh, unprecedented, unconventional, uh, central banking policy. What do you think the implications are? Yeah, well, we have to wait and see how it goes because even with the, and I think the um, best example at the moment is probably what the Fed has been doing for the last, what, three years since they first started hiking rates and also then tapering off and then, um, uh, well, in fact, unwinding, not just stopping, but starting to slowly, slowly, slowly unwind their um, their balance sheet. Uh, the interesting thing about watching the US, and that's has to be acknowledged that it's got an incredible fiscal sugar hit from uh, President Trump as well, and that's certainly not happening in the eurozone. Uh, so the US is a bit di is is different in terms of there is a fiscal stimulus, um, and the Fed is. Uh, partly responding to that, plus the fact that the economy is doing really well. You know, 3.8 unemployment, GDP sort of entrenched at sort of above trend, uh, uh, wages growth hinting, you know, a gentle sort of pickup. So they're responding to the fact that they need to normalise monetary policy to some extent. Um, so watching what they do is sort of the most interesting 
central bank reaction, although as David said, you know, with the ECB, yeah, the euro, the eurozone date has been well up until two or three months ago. It had been pretty good. There's been a little bit of a buckling in some of the um, German business surveys and some of the other harder data. It's just, yeah, I wouldn't get too worried just yet, but you know, it's down, not up. So what the ECB is doing right now is really interesting, perhaps signalling that you know, negative rates and this you know, incredible accumulation of, you know, as you said, 30 billion euros a month for the last couple of years just has to, has to stop at some stage. So they're, they're sort of banking on doing it now. But it, it, do, it does require, uh, and as we've seen with the ECB, gosh, in the last five or six years, remember they hiked a couple, or oh, five years ago, and then to reverse and all these other weird and wonderful yep. things that the, the Trichet, ECB does. Trichet came out. The, uh, yes. I remember, hiked, I remember yeah. the markets, whenever, uh, whenever Trichet came out for his, uh, yeah. his press conference, if his hair was slicked back, <laughs> he was going to be hawkish. If, 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 if his hair was uh, buffed up, that was definitely dovish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I must say, I didn't see Draghi, but so, so it's really interesting to see whether they follow through, because mm. again, even the best laid plans can sometimes go awry. But, but you know, it, it, it is a defining thing. So if we do sit back here in a year's time and there's more serious talk of rate increases being priced in and the tapering's occurring, uh, then that will be great news because it'll be a sign that the ECB and everybody else has got confidence that there's actually a bit of traction in uh, the Eurozone economies. So one term that we keep seeing uh, across the screens from time to time is late cycle. Uh, it seems to be just coming with uh, increasing regularity. Um, do you think we are a late cycle, uh, particularly with the US? And, and recession watching an inverted yeah. yield curve yeah. analysis and all this other stuff. Because if you look at the yield curve in the, in the US, it's remarkably flat. It's been flattening massively as the Fed's been hiking. And, well, the 10-year yield, if you use that as the benchmark for your yield curve, has been stuck at well, – it's got to three a couple of times, but and then has sort of rallied back below that. Uh, late cycle. Um, I would like to think <laughs> uh, that the Fed is pragmatic enough to see if there were a few cracks in the economy coming. Now, there haven't been any, to be honest, in the US economy. There's been almost certain, nothing's turned down in, uh, well, in, in any indicator, really. So that's why the, the dot point forecasts were for a whole bunch more rate hikes and all the rest of it. Uh, but, but if we were to see, say, by year end, perhaps as some of the uh, fiscal stimulus tapers off, the effect of the rate hikes has some sort of impact... Uh, geopolitical issues and trade war issues sort of have some sort of impact, perhaps. Who, who knows? Who knows what it's going to be? That they would they would pause. They they would change their view. And while some people in the markets are critical of central banks who give guidance and then change their mind, um, I'm I'm a bit more forgiving, even to the RBA, um, because yeah, they're they're, ma they're just made up of mere mortals who look at the data like like us here around the table, um, they look at the data, they crunch their numbers and you know, they pull their triggers according to what they see. But when the numbers change, they change. So late cycle, yes, well, this expansion has been very long in the US. The, the, recession, the last recession ended, what are we up to, eight and a half something years ago? Uh, and that's longer than average. So, and it seems like any time it's starting to look weak, it does some momentum comes back uh, from somewhere, like whether it's the tax cut or some infrastructure investment or whatever, um, whether it's the effects of those um, yeah. continuing. I think we've got to be careful through. with the US though, because it's it's well known that the seasonality there's something that's it's not quite right with the seasonality adjustments that are done in the in the uh, the March quarter, because it always seems to be a weak quarter. Then it comes a roaring back, and then all the pricing of uh, rate hikes comes back in, and it's been a pattern for that the last few years. So. I, I think the momentum in the US economy is looking very, very strong, and I'm not surprised in the slightest that they've decided to go and up there. 
the one one person only required to do it, but uh, no, the median now sees uh, four rate hikes this year. So I'm not not surprised in the slightest. I think the one thing everyone needs to go and keep a very close eye on is the US midterm elections in November. That will be a big one in terms of the outlook for not only like the US interest rate policy, but US dollar uh, and a global trade policy as well. So that's something that you should keep an eye on. But we have seen sort of too this pragmatic issue, and it was maybe it was I don't think it was the personality, but Janet Janet Yellen when she was Fed governor, she paused several times. Yeah, she sort of said, "Oh, we need to hike, we need to hike," and then got you know just a few little indicators. You know, inflation was a bit lower than they thought, or wages growth didn't pick up like they thought. So we'll pause this time, and yeah, next time we'll have a look at it. So there is that element of pragmatism which has served the US really well. As we was just saying, look at the economy now. It's doing really, really well. Uh, and it's to your point that you made earlier in regards to interest rates here. It's, it's, it's pertinent to that because, you know, they could cut, um, but uh, if you see you get the, some of the heat coming back in, then you, you know, retrieve your, your 25 basis points or whatever you put in. Sure, um, in, yeah. indeed. But for the moment, the US has just, and as David sort of touched on, it's just got the momentum that's just... Um, quite remarkable. And it is truly remarkable. It's strong. So late cycle, no, I think there's, gosh, uh, you, would, you would need to see something dramatically change for, the, for you to be worried that there's going to be a material slowing in growth. It looks good. So David, speaking of momentum, uh, Australia's biggest trading partner, uh, China, um, for the first time in some time, uh, you know, I can't remember them missing any data for about the last 12 months, particularly leading up to the People's Congress, uh, etc. Um, but some big, chunky misses uh, in, in the data dump this week. There were, but you've got to put everything into relative perspective when you're talking about China. We're like, oh, no, everyone was like harping on about their retail sales figure. It was only 8.5% annual growth. It's like... Uh, obviously, there, it does go and create a little bit of uncertainty, particularly the uh, the credit figures that came out, total social financing, the broadest measure of credit growth was a little bit soft uh, in May. But as we've seen so often with the Chinese economy, uh, when things look a little bit shaky, the state steps in. Uh, and that's, to me, not going to go and change anytime soon. They go and say, we have 6.5% uh, growth target for this year. You know, bang on, it will be 6.5%. Um, I'm not overly concerned about China. Obviously, the debt concerns are still there, but uh, you know, in terms of the short term, you know, we saw a bit of a wobble. Uh, I gather that policymakers will go and test the waters to see how strong the economy is without the state support. Uh, if it starts to waver a bit, you know, I know exactly what will happen. Yeah, and so important for Australia because, like retail sales, you know, yes, the infrastructure has been so important for for demand for um, the the big thing that we send them, which is, you know, iron ore and coal. Um, but increasingly, there are firms here in Australia that uh, are doing extremely well um, by marketing, uh, building big consumer markets in in China. Uh, and uh, retail sales, and it is hilarious, Dave, the, um, the number, you know, it was 9.4% in April, you know, and so retail sales growth being weak uh, at 8.5% over the year. Um, you know, in Australia, they're growing at about, what, two, if you're lucky. It is. And yeah. you've got to put it in relative size as well, because, you know, China's economy is massive and the base that it's coming off as well. You know, it seems like you no know, dramatic slowdown, but it's the, the base is, it's just 
the economy is growing so quickly that even if it's you know the percentage is dropping by a percentage point or two per year, it's effectively like still growing in a nominal sense really, really strongly. So uh, we've got to be careful about reading too much into it. One one month's data does not make a trend. Uh, let's go revisit when if, it, if it's say three months in a row, then I think we should probably start to get a little bit concerned. There are a couple of things with Chinese data that that I like to look at. And one of the ones that's sort of come through just recently is Treasury Wine. You know, a, a local Australian company, fantastic. They produce some lovely wine, um, but they've sort of had this stuff stuck at the ports. Now, I think there are a couple of different issues, not just lack of demand for Australian wine. There might be a few, um, uh, how do we put it diplomatically, some uh, some other concerns which have caused them to not to not clear the uh, wine off the shores. But nonetheless, if, to some extent, if there is a slowing consumer demand, then wine, which is a luxury item, you know, except in my household, um, it, it's probably going to be just sort of tapering a little bit. The other thing that I always look at at China, when if I'm confused about the Chinese economy, whether that retail sales number's correct or the IP number's correct or whatever, I'll take a step back a bit and look at what's what's happening to the sort of the, the not the RBA index of commodity prices, but the broad global indices of commodity prices, because if the Chinese economy is, is is rolling along at a decent clip, commodity prices are probably going to be quite high. You you'll rarely get the situation where the Chinese economy is in in freefall, if we can call it that, or is is weakening, is weakening precipitously, and you'd have commodity prices staying up. That doesn't sort of sit with my mind, and it hasn't over the last. 15 to 20 years. Uh, so I don't know, I look at the iron ore price, it's in the mid-60s, the coal price is doing very well. Oil price, well, it's a bit choppy and there's, of course, a whole lot of uh, OPEC-related Middle Eastern issues there. It's still 60-something bucks a barrel, it's still do- doing fine. Copper price is doing well. You know, so my look at the commodity price, I go, well, someone's buying them mm. because global supply of all these things is pretty, pretty fluid and pretty robust. So it's probably China... China's probably a little bit better than perhaps those numbers are suggesting. Yeah, look, if you've got any doubts about the Chinese data, and obviously there is many people who, who have that uh, that mindset, um, just look at uh, intra, intra-Asia trade between, you know, China is the biggest trading partner with almost everyone nowadays, but have a look at the likes of, you know, South Korea, have a look at Japan, have a look at us. That will go and give you an indication. Our trade uh, trade surplus is now being running for like the last uh, last four months, pretty uh, pretty sizable ones as well. So it gives you an indication that, you know, at least from a Chinese demand perspective is pretty strong. And now if their demand these uh, these commodities and and the like it probably tells you a little bit about how the economy is performing certainly going to be a really good one to keep an eye on uh, over the next little while uh, we're going to wrap it up shortly but um quickly um, need to talk about sport um uh, how how are your your mighty uh, collingwood um uh, traveling i don't want to be the kiss of death but they're doing Remarkably well, my Collingwood. Uh, you know, they they won the flag a couple of years ago, um, which was which was great news. But they've had a miserable period. So every time they're playing at the moment, they look to be too good. Touch wood, but the mighty Magpies. It just might be their year. Now, didn't they have a record-breaking <laughs> number of? Grand final losses. They were it used to be called the Collie Wobbles, you yeah. know, because they got into the semi-finals and they lost about yeah I can't remember the number of grand. I don't want to remember the number of grand finals <laughs> they lost. Uh, but they and it, but they didn't even make the grand final. Yeah, you know, they finished minor premiers and get booted out in the preliminary final. You know, they lost those finals. So that's that's yesterday's news. That's when you know Chinese economy was um, under control and only <laughs> yeah that, that was that was in the eighties. That was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Dave, uh, you're gonna go and watch this one. This weekend, right? I think so. Top of the table clash, or nearly. Swanee's in uh, third place and playing the uh, West Coast Eagles, who we managed to go and beat over there in the first round of the season. 
whether that's a, a guide, I'm not sure, but uh, I think it's going to be a bit of a wild and woolly night weather-wise. So given the uh, tendency for these two teams to go and you know, play out games within a kick uh, and given the weather that they're forecasting, I think it's going to be a cracker and very cold as well. So I've got my, I've got my scarf, I've got my jacket, I've got my beanie. I mean, that's, I'm not prepared for the, uh, the big, big uh, match tonight. Yeah, yeah. Well, you notice I haven't brought up the rugby. But I am now. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, usually, usually well, it's the first thing you talk about. <laughs> we're, not, we're, not, we're normally the ones that don't want to talk about it the last couple of years. My goodness. I know, that's why I've been so uh, you know pumped during the podcast. I've just been looking forward to uh, to talking about the rugby. Um, no, so uh, smashing um, by uh, well, it turned out to be a smashing in the end, score scoreline wise um, by the Australians last week. Uh, the Wallabies looking very good, I have to say. David Pocock being back uh, is just a revelation. Uh, like, what a player. Um, and Kurtley Beale had a great game, and Izzy had a great game as well, so it's all good. But uh, the Irish, um, they've got a proper team. This, uh, very surprised at some of the selections last week. Um, but Johnny Sexton's back. Uh, front row is Keane Healy, Niles Scannell, and Tyg Furlong. Um, now, Tyg Furlong was the European uh, Player of the Year this year. Um, uh, he's a big door of a bloke. He's a big farmer. Um, you know, famously ran over about three New Zealand forwards, including Kieran Reid, um, during the Lions tour a couple of years ago. Um, there's a very there's a hilarious song about him, uh, which is to the tune of Que Sera, Sera and I'm not going to include the swear word. You can fill it out, but it's a uh, Tyg Furlong, Furlong. He's big and he's effing strong. <laughs> he's right at the heart of the scrum, tied for long, for long. So the scrum, I'm looking forward to the forwards up, up wow. front. Um, it's going to be good. Um, and there's also a new um, uh, flanker in there, a guy called Dan Levy, uh, who's a brilliant Leinster player too. So up against um, the mighty Pocock. So uh, hopefully, uh, so I'm going to the Sydney test. Um, so hopefully Ireland can square the series um, this week and have a blockbuster decider in, uh, in when too much sport is never enough yeah. I love it I love it <laughs> you'll be disappointed Colgo I reckon the Wallabies the Wall- I, for, for the first run of the season it was okay uh, they were a bit scratchy I think the, the kicking game was particularly bad from the Wallabies uh, I, I thought that may have been our downfall but if we get that right you're, you're custard mate yeah, talk it up talk it up uh, okay you've been listening to the Devils of Details podcast from Business Insider Australia isn't it hilarious how I managed to get the last word in there uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform of choice under Devils of Details. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. And we're also on there individually, myself, Paul Colgan, David Scott, thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Thank, thank you, team. Terrific. And uh, yeah, Stephen Kukoulis, uh, who's on Twitter, uh, where he is absolutely excellent, at the kook. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. The show is produced by Rick Salter, and we'll catch you next time.